0: Turn, if you will, to Nehemiah chapter 11, Nehemiah 11 this morning. We'll look at the whole chapter. Occasionally in studying the scriptures we come across a text which challenges our confidence in that verse in uh, 2 Timothy 3 that says all scripture is profitable. Nehemiah 11 is a text like that. As we read through this, we say, why on earth did God give us this? Why did he preserve this for so many ages? What on earth does this have to say to us? Paul says they were written, these things were written for our instruction. So what are we to learn other than the fact that we can't pronounce Hebrew names very well, as you'll see? This is the problem when you start to study actually through books of the Bible, you have to deal with chapters like this. You can't just skip the hard things. You have to actually look at them and think about them. Uh, But inevitably, they prove to be profitable for us, just like the Apostle said, when we take the time to uh, think what they're saying and get over the difficult things and uh, consider what it means to us in our own lives. So join me as we try to think about this passage a bit this morning. I'm going to attempt to read it, more or less. And you'll just have to be uh, gracious with me, because I don't pronounce the Hebrew names very well either. Hebrews 11. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten families to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah. And then it lists the families of Judah that uh, moved into Jerusalem, a total of 468 able men, as it says in verse 6. And then from the descendants of Benjamin... Um, and it lists the sons of uh, Benjamin, the descendants of Benjamin, and their uh, their children and grandchildren, a total of 928 men, as we see in the end of verse 8, who moved into Jerusalem. Then in verse 10, from the priest. And actually it lists uh, six different priests, and the, the, the numbers of each of these clans that uh, moved into Jerusalem. Verse 15, from the Levites. And it lists some of the Levites uh, in verses 15 to uh 18, a total of 284 families of Levites. Verse 19, the gatekeepers. And it uh, lists uh, them, and uh, it notes that it's 172 men or families. Verse 20, the rest of the Israelites, with the priests and the Levites, were all in the towns of Judah, each on his ancestral property. The temple servants lived on the hill of Ophel, and Ziha and Gishpah were in charge of them. The chief officer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, son of Benai, son of Hashabiah, the son of Mataniah, the son of Micah. Uzi was one of Asaph's descendants, who were the singers responsible for the service of the house of the Lord. The singers were under the king's orders, which regulated their daily activity. Bethahiah, son of Maheshabel, one of the descendants of Zerah, son of Judah, was the king's agent in all affairs relating to the people. As for the villages with their fields, some of the people of Judah lived in kiriath Arab, Erba and its surrounding settlements, in Debon and their settlements, in Zeel, and their villages, in and Jeshua, and Molada, in and Beth-Pelet, in and Hazar, Shaul, in Beersheba and its settlements, in Ziglag, in Merkona and its settlements, in Riman, in Zorah, in Jarmuth, in Zanoah, Abdullam, and their villages, in Lachish and its fields, and in Azekah and its settlements, so they were all living, so they were living all the way from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The descendants of the Benjamites from Geba lived in Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its settlements, in Anatoth, Nob, and Ananiah, and Hazar, Ramoth, and Gitaim, in Hadid, Zeboyim, Nebalet, and Lod, and Ono, and in the valley of the Crasp, and Some of the divisions of the Levites of Judah settled in Benjamin. Just one truth I think we ought to learn from this passage, and it's found right up front in the text. And then the rest of that relates to that. And that one truth is this, that God's plans, I'll say it in two sentences actually, God's plans take precedence over your plans. Specifically, God has the right to determine where we live. God has the right to determine where we live. We live. Everyone knows that the most important thing when you're looking for a house is location, location, location. But that's not just a little truism concerning the purchase of a home. That sums up much of the agenda of the American dream. We work and sacrifice to buy the right house in the right town, in the right neighborhood, next to the right people, So that our kids can go to the right schools, and get the right jobs, and afford to buy the right house in the right town in the right neighborhood, by the next to the the right people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. These there are few things as important in the pursuit of the American dream as your freedom to decide and move into and live in the right location. We'll stand by. For the scriptures are about to cut through all of our cultural presuppositions. For here we learn that God's plans take precedence over our plans so profoundly that God has the right to determine where you live. Consider the situation in Nehemiah's Jerusalem. Let's just review a moment. The walls of Jerusalem had laid in ruin for years after the people had returned from Babylon to their homeland. And so in the early chapters, uh, uh, Nehemiah came, and the people rallied behind Nehemiah to rebuild the walls. There was a lot of opposition, but the people hung in there, and they did the building, and they, and they uh, fought against the, the struggles. And when the wall, wall was completed, there was a time of renewal. They read the law of God and realized how far they had strayed from its guidance. And so the people committed themselves to follow God's word, and that renewal has been the subject of the last few chapters that we've studied. Now it would seem after all of this that it would be time for everyone to go home and plant their fields and get on about the task of living. But the renewal was not yet complete. Back in chapter 7, Nehemiah had noticed how sparse the population was in the city of Jerusalem. And now these people, who had committed themselves to obedience, realized that that needed to change. It was as if God said, I want some of you to leave your homes and move into my city. Now why didn't they lived there already. Why weren't people clamoring to live in Jerusalem? Well, it was the center of controversy, for one thing. It had a reputation of being a rebellious city. And Jerusalem contained what little wealth there was in the land, so if, if uh, they were deemed a rebellious center and an, and, and an attack came, it was going to be the first to be attacked. Plus, the temple that dwelt there demanded a lot of work of those who lived around the temple. But mostly, the city had been in ruin for years, and there were still piles of rubble around. It just wasn't a nice place to live. People didn't want to move into that city for the same reason you don't want to move into Detroit. It's not a happy place to be. Plus, the people had their own ancient homelands. They didn't return from exile to live in Jerusalem. They returned to go home. And so the city of Jerusalem remained sparsely populated. What used to be the glorious center of activity of the people of God was now an undesirable location in which to live. You've heard the little children's rhyme. Here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors and see all the people. Chuck Swindle in his book on Nehemiah has a different rhyme for Jerusalem. He says, here's the walls, Here's the city, open the gates. Oh my, what a pity. So in our text, the leaders of Jerusalem come up with a plan to populate the city. They decide to apply the principle of the tithe to the whole population. One out of every ten families was chosen by lot. Now that was not a matter of Chance, this is how they determine what God would have them to do. They cast lots. You find that throughout the whole Old Testament. One out of every ten families was chosen by Lot to pack up and move permanently to live in Jerusalem. And this they voluntarily complied with, according to verse 2. Then verses 3 to 19 tell us who those people were two provincial leaders of Judah, Athiah and Maasiah. And all their people, a total of 468 family heads. One provincial leader of the tribe of Benjamin, Salu, along with his people, 928 families. Six key leaders of the priest, Jediah, Joyarib, and Kajakin, with 822 families. Sariah, Adiah, and his kinsmen, with 242 families. Amashai and his family, and his brothers, with 128 families. Then the leaders of the Levites with 284 families, the gatekeepers with 172 families. That's a total of 3,044 families chosen by Lot to pack up and move into to populate Jerusalem. Just think about that for a moment. Think about the commitment of these people to live out the Word of God, which caused them to submit to being resettled from their ancient homelands, one out of ten families, 3,000 plus families, moved from their homes in the country, moved from their ancestral towns and, and, and villages where their grandfathers and great-grandfathers had lived until the land, moved into the city of Jerusalem. Because they understood that God's plans took precedence over their plans. They recognized that God had a right to determine where they lived. Some of these people had very important jobs in Jerusalem. We can understand why they went. And other people had very mundane jobs. But they were all needed for the functioning of God's holy city. Some were leaders. According to verse 9, Joel, son of Zikri, was the chief officer. Judah, son of Hazenua, was second over over the second district. According to verse 11, Shariah the priest was the supervisor of the house of God. According to verse 16, Shabbatai and uh, Josabad were the leaders of the Levites who did the outside work of the temple, probably not just mowing the grass, but probably the temple repair in general. According to verse 21, Ziha and Gishpah were in charge of the temple servants. According to verse 22, Uzi was the music director in charge of all the singers. According to verse 24, Pethahiah was the king's representative in all matters concerning the people. We probably call him a public affairs officer or something like that. But in addition to these, there, was, to these, there were hundreds of unnamed, faithful people of God who moved into the city to serve the Lord. 822 of the priest's kinsmen performed work in the, in, in the temple. We don't even, even know their names. There are 128 men who were valiant warriors, a term is used that talks about military uh, training, uh, uh, moved there to protect the, the temple. 172 men function as gatekeepers, watching the gates, guarding the temple's treasures and its sacredness. Whatever the job, distinguished or virtually unknown, these people recognize that God's plans are more important than their plans, specifically that, uh, uh, in, in where they lived and what they did. Now, the other cities of Jerusalem or of Judah and Benjamin were also important. God had given that land to various uh, uh, tribes centuries earlier, and now they were to resettle those areas too. And verse twenty says as much. The rest of the Israelites, with the priests and Levites, were in all the towns of Judah, each in his ancestral property. That wasn't unimportant. Verses twenty-five to thirty-six list those areas where they all lived. But the point is, the choice was God's. The choice was God's. Does that make you uncomfortable wondering where I'm going with this? I read James Boyce's commentary on this and he talked about if you could get a tenth of the population to move into the cities, we could transform the cities. So a tenth of the Christians to move into the cities. We could transform the cities of America. Talk about Evie Hill, who used to be a Democratic politicians, a block a block captain, became a Christian. Says, "You know, we have one Christian, strong Christian witness in every block of this city. I lived in Los Angeles. We, we we can make an impact here. Sort out how many blocks are there? Nineteen hundred some. Started working it out. So where are we going with this? Is your pastor some cult leader? Is going to tell us to all pick up and move to Idaho or something? No." I'm not a cult leader, and you wouldn't follow me if I were. But notice it wasn't Nehemiah the governor who came up with this plan anyway. This was an act of the people themselves who had just made a commitment not to neglect the house of their God and realized that wasn't just about bringing firewood and the first fruits of their crops, it was about bringing themselves. Actually, this is just the latest example. ...of the Bible's teaching that God has a right to determine where his people live. Because his plans take precedence over ours. Remember G- Genesis 12? God said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, your father's household, and go. He didn't tell him where. Go to the land I'm going to show you. Remember Genesis 26? Isaac wanted to move because there was a family. He wanted to move to Egypt, and God said, do not, do not go down to Egypt... You live in the land where I tell you to live. That's in Genesis 26. Later in Exodus 2, after Moses had fled Egypt for his life, we read that he was content to dwell in the land of Midian. He had found a wife there named Zipporah, and he was happy as a clam to be tending sheep in Midian. In the next chapter, God said to him, Moses, go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. In Jeremiah 1, God told Jeremiah, Do not say I'm only a child. You must go everywhere I send you and say whatever I command you. In Isaiah 6, when Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord and experienced his cleansing, what was his first response? Here I am. Send me. Whatever that might mean. When you come to the New Testament, Jesus calls his disciples to follow him and he warns them about the living conditions. He says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Come with me. (laughs) The Great Commission, Jesus commands simply go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when the people did not really go so quickly, we read in Acts chapter 8 that God allowed persecution to come on them in Jerusalem. And they all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Years later, in Acts 13, when the church in Antioch is prospering and they're growing, they have a staff of five pastors now. Life was good. God said to the church, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. In other words, separate out two of your five pastors who I'm going to send to to do missionary work. So Paul and Barnabas, two of their best, were chosen and sent. Came back to report, but never served there again. They were gone. You see, throughout history, God's people have repeatedly had to recognize that God has the right to determine where his people live, to send them where and when he wants. God's people have always considered themselves to be, as Apostle Peter instructs us, aliens and strangers on earth, who consider the permanency and the security of the heavenly Jerusalem to define home for us more than any piece of real estate on this earth. Folks, you and I are not exempt from this. Christ Jesus is Lord, and that affects where we live. There's several applications of this truth for us. So let me spend the rest of the time sharing kind of how I think it applies. First of all, four of these. First of all, every person God calls to the mission field faces this truth. The United States is a pretty nice place to live. Do not think that people who go out to some primitive culture or to some congested foreign city do so because they're too dumb to know how good they had it back in the U.S. No, they know. It's just that they recognize that God has the right to send them away from their homeland to serve him wherever he wants them to be. His plans take precedence. So I have to ask you, have you considered that that might be you? What right do you have to assume that that's always going to be somebody else, not you? God doesn't call everyone to leave home and go to the mission field, but every Christian has the obligation to offer to do so, if God so pleases. Have you ever said, like Isaiah said, Here am I, Lord. Send me. I'm willing. Show me what. Show me where. Brian Vanderhoek calls that the scary prayer. Second application. This truth actually has application for any move that we make. You know, if this church decided that you and your family ought to move to some city city, to help plant a church there, you would probably feel that was none of the church's business. Isn't it interesting then how many people in our land think their employer has the right to move them wherever he wants. And many Christians never even consider what such a move will mean for the spiritual life of their family. So may I be so bold as to say it is sinful sinful for you to accept such a move, even if it's a great promotion in your career. Until you've asked God about it, until you've sought what it will mean for the spiritual life of your family, until you've investigated what churches are available to you uh, in that new location, and we've studied the school situation to know the impact on your covenant children, and considered what impact it might have on the community and the ministries that you're leaving. You see, it's a matter of lordship. Who's in charge of your life? God's plans take precedence over yours or your employer's, He has the right to determine where you live. Third application. What if you would love to go to some new place and pursue some great ministry, but in spite of all your desires, God leaves you here, in your same old house, in your same old church? with your same old neighbors and your same old friends and your same old boring job and no prospect of change, while others go off and do impressive things. Well, is God in control of your life, or isn't He? God could move you to the most exciting, wonderful spot in the world, living next to the most interesting people in the world, doing great things. He could do that tomorrow if He wants. But if He leaves you right here doing what you're doing, He also has that right. And so we have to learn contentment. You see, contentment is the product of believing that God's plans take precedence over my plans, that God has the right to put me where he puts me. Therefore, I will accept it and I will be satisfied with his plan for my life, mundane as it may seem. For as long as we chafe and fight against God, we miss the opportunities that he's given us to use these homes we do have. As mission outposts for the advance of the kingdom of God in this area with these people. One more application. What if God gives you everything you could wish for in this world? He doesn't ask you to go live in Detroit or South Central LA, He doesn't call you to Lisbon or Mexico City, He doesn't send you off to New Guinea. He gives you a beautiful home in Whatcom County, Washington, with all the benefits of comfort in the United States. Now what? Dear brother or sister, you're still not exempt from the radical call to discipleship that Jesus makes. If he entrusts such lavish blessings on you, you better be faithful, for they're not your own, they are his. To be used for his kingdom. His plans still take precedence over your plans. You're not free to just be like your neighbors, living at ease in America. No, you are one with your brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling to be faithful amid hardships in all kinds of difficult places in this world. That's your family. Don't you forget who you are and what your agenda is to be. You are a citizen You are a stranger and an alien here, a citizen of the heavenly Jerusalem. Only when you get there will you be home, so don't settle down too much. Instead, use everything that is entrusted to you to serve King Jesus, for only his kingdom has any lasting significance. God's plans take precedence over yours. God has the right to determine where and how. You live. When we study American history, we tend to honor presidents and prominent leaders of the past. But you know, in reality, the nation has been built and preserved not just by great leaders, but by thousands upon thousands of citizens. Soldiers whose graves are now marked with simple white crosses. People whose names you will never know. But though they are unknown, they are not unimportant. They have built this nation and protected the freedoms that we know. Similarly, the work of God is not just about the great churchmen in history, the Luthers and the Spurgeons and the William Careys. No, God has called for himself a whole people who recognize his lordship over all of life right down to the places we live and the jobs that we do. These faithful people, your brothers and sisters in Christ, are the citizens God uses for the advance of his eternal kingdom. And so today I call you to imitate the example of Christ along with those brothers and sisters. Christ who voluntarily left the glory of heaven to dwell on the earth in the midst of sinners. He took on himself the role of a servant, was made in the likeness of man. He was obedient to his Father all the way to, cro- to the cross in order to accomplish our, our redemption. And today he calls and claims our lives in just such terms as he gave his. He calls us to forego the comforts of home, to live and work in places we might not choose, in the midst of people we might not like and to function as his servants, and the servants of those uh, among whom we live. You see, folks, confessing Christ as Lord involves a life-encompassing obedience, a total surrender of will, plans, desires, and preferences, allowing God to determine what we do and where we do it. May God, by his grace, make us faithful in that. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, dear Father, it's one thing to preach radical discipleship. It's quite another to live it. And we know that we live it, Lord, not in just the big decisions about whether you would have us to go to the mission field or not, but in the daily decisions of what, how we spend our time and how we spend our money and what we do with the opportunities that we have and the people, the relationships that we have in our, in our lives. Oh, Father, make us a faithful people. So faithful, Lord, that if you were to decide to send one out of every ten of us uh, to the most God-forsaken place in the world, we would readily say, here am I, send me. We know, Father, you're quite capable of leading us, causing us to know where you would have us to be. So humble our hearts. Work a commitment in our hearts, a desire for faithfulness in our hearts that doesn't waver in good times, bad times, in times of plenty, in times of want. Oh God, shower your grace upon us that we might be faithful to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Put it in your bullet is an affirmation of faith. I always try to find some creedal statement that uh, reinforces the thing we preach, and I don't know of any creed that talks about God uh, telling us where we live. But I do know the Bible talks about it, and so what we have here is a quote from Acts chapter 17. Let's read it as an affirmation of our own faith. Together. We believe that the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He determined the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being.